Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with former President Trump's dangerous demagoguery on display at a rally in Texas on Saturday, at which, in a racist attack on the prosecutors in New York and Atlanta who are investigating him, he called on his followers to engage in, quote, the biggest protest we have ever had, and also obstructed justice in plain sight, promising to pardon the January 6th insurrectionists who he claimed, quote, are being treated so unfairly. Joining us is Jennifer Machia, a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric. An historian of American political discourse, she is the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. Then we'll get an assessment of the deliberations before the UN Security Council today over Russia's military threats against Ukraine and speak with Dulcie Limeback, founder and editor of Pass Blue, which covers the United Nations. Previously, she was an editor for the Coalition for the UN Convention Against Corruption and was the publications director of the United Nations Association of the USA and was an editor at the New York Times for more than 20 years. Then finally, we'll speak with Max Bergman, the director of the Moscow Project and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on European security and U.S.-Russia policy. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the U.S. Department of State in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff, Special Assistant to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, Speechwriter to then Secretary of State John Kerry, and Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs. He joins us to discuss his report at the Center for American Progress, How the United States Should Respond If Russia Invades Ukraine. And with Biden meeting today with the Emir of Qatar, a major gas exporter, we'll assess what alternatives Europeans will have if Russian gas exports are shut off in the event of war. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now, Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communications and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Machia. It's my pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And former President Trump had a rally in Conroe, Texas on Saturday at which he made possibly the most incendiary and dangerous speech in America's 246-year history. You're a student of political rhetoric. Is there any other uh, example, maybe Huey Long, but he was never president, of a 
President of the United States committing a form of obstruction of justice in full view, it was pretty shocking. It was shocking. Uh, One of the things that has been fascinating and frightening about Donald Trump is that um, since he's left office, he has essentially spun a narrative of himself as a pretender to the presidency, as someone who's been, you know, wrongfully dethroned, who's in exile, just waiting for his chance to return to power. Um, and it's a really enticing narrative uh, for his followers, of course. It, it keeps them supporting him. Um, it, it's part of the conspiracy that he's been wielding for years and years. Um, and certainly f- uh, folds into the big lie from 2020 election. Um, and so that's what I think we saw on display at his rally. Well, I suppose in a way you could venture into psychiatry because this is somebody who was brutalized by his father. And his father, of course, drove his older brother into alcoholism and an early death. And Trump himself has, has often talked about how tough he his father was on him, that you can't be a loser. So is this all because of this frail ego and mental state of this one man that he's putting America through this extraordinary divisive process that could get really ugly and could even result in civil war simply because he personally can't accept the idea that he lost an election and that therefore he's a loser? Yeah, I mean, it may well be. He is incapable of admitting that he has lost. Um, And that might, as you say, you know, have roots in his family dynamics. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not qualified to say that exactly. Um, But if you look at his biography, anyone who has written about his life, it's the same story repeated over and over again, which is this is a person who sees the world Um, you know, in terms of very stark realities, you know, it's a zero sum game and you're either a winner or you're a loser. And, you know, his whole narrative in running for president and while he was president was that he was the apotheosis, the greatest example of American exceptionalism, that he was the personification of America winning and that, you know, therefore he would win easily for America. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that's his self-image. He can't let that go. But if it's not about his psychological state of being incapable of accepting defeat, then it's deeply cynical and deeply dangerous, is it not? Well, absolutely. It was one of the things that um, I found most troubling after the 2020 election uh, when it was clear that Biden had won. And and Trump supporters um, in the White House and, you know, sort of the Republican elite were saying, oh, just humor the guy. You know, he'll come to terms with it eventually. What's the harm of, you know, giving him a few weeks to (laughs) to accept the results? You know, he's out on the golf course. It's not like he's out there planning a coup when, in fact, he was out there planning a coup. Um, you know, and humoring him and and sort of slow walking him until he could accept it was never going to happen, right? So, you know, what people think would be the natural course of a president accepting defeat, you know, that was just not in the cards for Donald Trump. And and that should have been recognized. Well, what he said, just to quote him on Saturday in uh, Conroe, Texas, he said, talking about the prosecutor's 
who happen to be all African Americans, including the head of the January 6th Select Committee in the House. These prosecutors are vicious, horrible people. They're racists and they're very sick. They're mentally sick. They're going after me without any protection of my rights from the Supreme Court or most other courts. In reality, they're not after me, they're after you, he told the crowd. And then he exhorted them, if these racist prosecutors do anything legal or wrong, I hope we're going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and everywhere because our country and our elections are corrupt. Well, that's a call to arms, is it not? Yeah, he, I mean, he's certainly doing a few things there that he has done in the past. Um, you know, he's relying on his crowd, so using an ad populum appeal, using them as a cudgel, as a wedge, you know, to threaten violence. Um, that line that he said, you know, that they're not after me in reality, they're after you. That's actually a meme that he has posted on his Twitter feed, um, which is fascist, uh, right? And it it tells his audience that, um, you know, he's a martyr for them. He's suffering um, in his defense of them. And so, you know, he's an innocent victim and they are irrational aggressors um, and that these irrational, terrible aggressors are really after Trump's followers. And Trump is the only thing standing in their way. Um, and so therefore, you know, it encourages the followers to defend Trump. Whatever Trump does has to be good because he's doing it in defense of you, right? Um, so, I mean, it's it's a recipe for fascist rhetoric. It's exactly how fascist leaders talk to their followers. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very consistent with what he's been doing. That's why, you know, he's a dangerous demagogue. And again, I'm speaking with Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, an historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Now, as I mentioned, the targets of Trump's call for his followers to rise up in his defense, there were clearly dog whistles, racially motivated dog whistles, because the Attorney General of New York is is an African-American, the Manhattan DA is also an African-American, and the Fulton County prosecutor, uh, she's also an African-American, and she's actually gone so far as to call the FBI to protect her and to protect the Fulton County Courthouse and other government buildings in Atlanta. And, of course, we all heard on tape Trump calling on the Secretary of State of Georgia to find 11,780 votes. It was just as clear as day. That's irrefutable evidence. The other thing that he did do, though, that is also dangerous and and it even got some of his supporters in the Republicans in the in the Senate to step up and and object. He said, "If I run and if I win, we will treat those people from January the sixth fairly. We will treat them fairly, and if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated so unfairly." And even 
Senator Lindsey Graham, who's been something of a lapdog, on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday said, I think it's inappropriate. I don't want to reinforce that defiling the Capitol was okay. I don't want to do anything that could make this more likely in the future. And he went on to say that uh, they should actually throw the book at these insurrectionists. So is it possible that there'll be some pushback from Republicans? So far, they've been completely intimidated by Trump. And clearly, he has the base in his pocket. And seven out of 10 Republicans apparently believe that he's the legitimate president and that Biden's an imposter. Yeah, I mean, every every time a Republican or a news organization defies Trump, he, he forces them, he coerces them into submitting. So Lindsey Graham is a great example. When um, Trump started his campaign in the summer of 2015, Lindsey Graham was one of the first people, if not the first people, to call Trump a demagogue and to say that, you know, he shouldn't be running and that what he was doing was hurting the Republican Party. And Donald Trump, you know, went to war with him, against him. He did things like doxed him in his home state. He gave out his home phone number, his cell phone number, and told his followers to call Lindsey Graham. Um, you know, they traded insults and eventually Lindsey Graham capitulated. So, you know, it's a pattern we've seen repeatedly. You know, someone like Lindsey Graham can say at this point, you know, that we shouldn't prejudge and we shouldn't say that this is OK. But if Trump is reelected, then I imagine that whatever Trump wants to do is what will be done. Well, it's so extraordinary the faces and the rhetoric coming out of the Republican Party now, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, Matt Gates's, Jim Jordan's, uh, the QAnon types, along with Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Lauren Bobbitt. I mean, at the rally in Texas on Friday, there was a woman in her Trump 2024 hat going on about how Joe Biden, the Joe Biden who's currently in the White House now, is a fake and that the real one was assassinated at uh, Guantanamo in March of 2019. So, I mean, this is obviously stretching the boundaries of credulity, but it seems like so much of the the belief system that's come from the fringes is, is now being mainstreamed. I mean, Stop the Steal is a complete fiction, and yet it's been swallowed whole. Yeah, absolutely. And that mainstreaming of fringe content and conspiracy theory has been ongoing for five or six years now. Um, And you're right, it's become absolutely central to the Republican Party identity. It's a real shame. (laughs) Um, You know, it's really it's an it's a shame because we can't solve political problems. We can't move forward as a nation. We can't, um, you know, agree, you know, even what the problems are. Um, because we share such very different views of what reality is. Well, at the risk of beating a dead horse, <laughs> I've looked into the the Russian ties, and much of the evidence is still classified in terms of counterintelligence, which is pretty closely held stuff because of its sources and methods, etc. But it's pretty clear that Putin, as the former director of national intelligence, uh, General Clapper, said Vladimir Putin is Trump's case officer, that whether or not, and nobody thinks that the Kremlin actually is the puppeteer and that Trump is the puppet, but rather that he's a sort of a useful idiot 
but he's also the gift that keeps on giving as far as Putin. Here he is poised to go to war against Ukraine. He's already gone to war twice. He's already attacked Ukraine twice and taken Crimea and taken a big chunk of the east. And now he's threatening to attack it again, take the whole country, and somehow or other Putin's telling us that it's our responsibility, it's our problem. I mean, it's like if you burn down your neighbor's house and then you suddenly tell the people across the street that they're responsible, I mean, it's just a surreal situation that we're facing here and it's going to be very obviously damaging our war in Europe to Biden and his agenda, which is obviously something that Putin is quite happy about. But without being conspiratorial, Jennifer, the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump is the most effective agent of division that America's ever had since the Civil War. He is dividing this country, and now, because of his incendiary rhetoric on Saturday, he's laying down a marker for even for a potential civil war, which will divide this country enormously in the upcoming elections, and particularly in 2024. And this is absolutely criminal, and for the life of me, I do not understand why the whole country can't wake up and see how dangerous this demagogue is. Yeah, absolutely. In my book, Demagogue for President, I explained that Donald Trump had actually attacked America in 2016. He attacked our public sphere. He took pre-existing distrust, polarization, and frustration and used rhetorical strategies that was designed that were designed to make that all worse. Um, and so he attacked our democracy the way he communicated. Um, and in terms of being an agent of discord and, you know, aligned with Putin, um, you know, you don't have to have secret records released to see that, um, you know, propaganda analysts have some really great terms for what they see going on. Um, one of them is meme warfare, right? So instead of cyber warfare, where you're attacking the hardware of um, another country or an organization, you're attacking the thoughts, feelings, values, narratives of a nation. Um, with meme warfare, it's a kind of information war. And if you trace out the ways that uh, Russian propaganda outlets like RT and Sputnik um, cooperated in communicating, sharing narratives and stories with um, Trump when he was running for office, when he was uh, president, um, now doing it through Infowars and through Tucker Carlson. You know, that's a, a technique called narrative laundering, where um, you take sort of dirty ideas and narratives and, and talking points, and you recycle them through um, a more trusted resource like Fox News. You know, it's it's all information war out there. And Donald Trump has either been a willing participant or he's been, you know, a useful stooge. It's unclear. But the damage is being done. Um, Absolutely. So it sort of doesn't matter what <laughs> what the diagnosis is here. Absolutely. The, the, the disease is infecting us. And it's, it's infected, what, seven out of ten Republicans. Yeah. And so I don't know whether we can rely on Lindsey Graham, but... Are others like him <laughs> likely to come forward, do you think? I'm I'm sort of desperately hoping, I'd like to see the Democrats get off the dime and really get tough, but that's a perennial problem, it seems. But I'd also like to see the Republicans, the decent Republicans, making a stand. We've only got, you've only got Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger 
I mean, Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, did speak out against him, and so did Senator Collins of Maine. But Collins also would not rule out supporting Trump in 2024. And, of course, I mentioned uh, Lindsey Graham. But we obviously need a lot more. Somebody's got to make a stand. And and you, and you pointed out, <laughs> Jennifer, that it was Lindsey Graham who originally, st- at the very beginning when Trump was running, said that guy's a demagogue and a danger. So did Mitt Romney, by the way. He made an mm-hmm. incredibly well-sourced, sensible speech, said that the guy's a complete con man and... If you believe anything he he says, you know, it's about worth as much as a, as a diploma from Trump University. So if that's the amazing thing, isn't it? It's all out there. Trump himself said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. So what's happening to this country? Uh, don't, don't we recognize criminals from decent folk? I mean, don't we recognize demagogues from traditional politicians? Don't we recognize fascists from... Democrats and small d Democrats? Yeah, you would think that we would. And this is really the fascinating sleight of hand that Donald Trump has has used um, in in his <laughs> political career is that he he is a con man and he has tricked his supporters into believing that he is an authentic heroic demagogue, someone who is a leader of the people who stands up for, you know, their rights and freedoms against the other parts of the state, which they believe are corrupt. He's been masterful at using polarizing rhetoric, us versus them, good versus bad, the real Americans against the fake Americans. You know, he positions his followers in such a way that they see themselves as the only good, the only good part of the nation, and everything else is wrecked or ruined or destroyed or corrupt. And they really believe that they and he are the only solution, that they're the only things that stand between, you know, certain ruin for the nation and, uh, you know, these evil Democrats and these plotters. It's a very enticing narrative because it positions his followers as heroes, right? And himself as a hero. And if you if you believe that, if you see the world that way, um, you know, motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, all of those kinds of, um, you know, sort of cognitive weaknesses that we have are going to be deployed to make that narrative come true, you know, as you hear the facts as they're presented to you through Fox News and OAN and, you know, these other conspiracy sites. Um, it's all very reinforcing, uh, and it, it makes makes it hard to see through. Onward, Christian soldiers. <laughs> I fear that the months and years ahead could get very ugly, and I thank you very much for joining us here today. Jennifer Machia. It's my pleasure. I wish I had happier things to talk about. <laughs> Likewise. But this, this was a shocker. Uh, anybody who looked, watched that rally in Texas. 
And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Machia, who's a professor in the Department of Communications at Texas A&M University, where she teaches courses on political communication and presidential rhetoric, and a historian of American political discourse, especially discourses about citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. She's the co-editor of The Rhetoric of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and the author of Founding Fictions, as well as Demagogue for President, the rhetorical genius of Donald Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the deliberations today before the United Nations Security Council over Russia's military threats against Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Elsie Limeback, who is the founder and editor of Past Blue, which covers the United Nations. Previously, she was an editor for the Coalition for the UN Convention Against Corruption, was the publications director of the United Nations Association of the USA, and was an editor at the New York Times for more than 20 years. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dulcie Limeback. Hello there, from New York. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us, Dulcie. And it was a pretty tense uh, meeting today at the Security Council of the United Nations in a meeting called by the United States. Russia was reluctant uh, to have the meeting, and they referred to what the U.S. was doing as megaphone diplomacy, having a kind of public airing. And the U.S. in turn said, well, how would Russia feel if there were 100,000 troops sitting on your border? The meeting lasted about two hours and the Russian delegate left early. So what did you make of it? Well, actually, I thought it was uh, more low-key than expected, uh, having witnessed, you know, a lot of these meetings, um, particularly uh, around Syria in the early days, in the early years of the war, things would get, like, so intense that you just felt like you couldn't stay in the same room as the Security Council. So uh, I think Part of the issue was that this was really uh, a meeting for U.S. and Russia to trade barbs and the other uh, members, the other uh, 13 members sort of were keeping cool heads in the, throughout the meeting and throughout their speeches. So it really boiled down to what Russia said to U.S. and what U.S. said to Russia. Also, because the meeting was sort of last minute, uh, it felt like the uh, other members didn't really have time to uh, go too far into their speeches. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have uh, political considerations, as they say, as to to what they um, need to, uh, their positions in the Security Council on this very, very sensitive topic. No, so it, the, the level of fireworks was not, was maybe a six or a seven out of a ten. Okay. But what I find extraordinary about this whole thing is it's it's a manufactured crisis, crisis manufactured by Putin himself. It's akin to burning down your neighbor's house and then telling the people across the street that they're somehow responsible. I mean, Putin has already invaded 
Ukraine twice. He seized Crimea, and then he took a whole chunk of eastern Ukraine, and now he's threatening to take the whole country. And yet, it's somehow our responsibility. Did anybody point that out, that he sort of shifted the whole narrative away from what he's doing to saying that, you know, it's really the West's responsibility and it's NATO's responsibility? Well, he's shifted the um, defense to to the U.S., or at least the offense, because he's saying uh, the U.S. is the one that's whipping up all this hysteria. But in fact, uh, you know, he's the one who has amassed 100,000 plus combat and other troops around Ukraine. And this is, you know, this is classic Russia where they have been building up this massive uh, troop deployment for almost a year, uh, little by little. And so now it's so huge that uh, it's, it's terrifying for for the whole world. And the, the fact is that nobody knows what Putin really wants to do. And he seems possibly backed into a corner because he does have all these troops now uh, gathered. And, and what is he going to do? Is he going to go to war? Is he going to grab a small portion of Ukraine? Or is he going to uh, install a, you know, a Russian puppet in the, in the um, Kiev capital? Nobody knows. I don't think uh, his uh, own close aides know. And uh, so this is clearly a way that uh, he's playing a game and he has uh, the whole world's attention. And uh, it's all sort of uh, a wait and see. So this meeting was meant to just sort of air the, the, uh, to the public, uh, you know, what is going on, at least in terms of the Security Council on this crisis. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the ambassador, said uh, it was an opportunity for Russia to explain what it's doing. And then she came out at the end of the meeting and told reporters, well, that, that didn't happen. We still don't know what Russia's plans are. They didn't, they didn't say. I mean, at the end of the day, they don't say what they're planning to do. Well, and Russia's counterpart on the Security Council to Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, Vasily Nebenzia, he uh, actually recycled these old uh, charges going back to 2014 uh, when he charged that the Ukraine, the pro-Moscow government had been driven out of power by the CIA and, and the U.S. had installed nationalist radicals, Russophobes and pure Nazis. So that's an old uh, canard, that one. Well, sure. I mean, and that's what they're very good at is uh, recycling, uh, you know, history uh, with a sort of new angle. So uh, I think they were very unhappy that this meeting was called. And uh, Nebenzio had actually been in Moscow most of the month. He had to fly back on Friday before the snowstorm hit New York City uh, on Saturday because all the flights were canceled. So he had to be there for the meeting on Monday. And there's no way that Russia was agreeable about this meeting because they would they were put on the defensive and they had no rationale to present to the council members as to what's going on with these troops in uh, on the border of Ukraine there's you know absolutely no clear reason other than to be menacing and threatening and meanwhile apparently in Ukraine itself the russians are using bomb threats to overwhelm the security services mm. going up. Hundreds of bomb threats are being f- mm. phoned in. 
which is an indicator of how there's a whole bunch of mischief that can be done at the lower level beneath, you know, a shooting war. Right. Uh, I mean, I've actually been to Ukraine, um, to, to Kiev, and that was, I believe, in 2015. It was after the Maidan revolution, and it was in the middle of December. It's a, it was a very sad place then, and, uh, and I'm sure it's still a sad place now. And everyone talked about uh, the level of corruption in the government and Russia's just tremendous uh, insinuation in its uh, society for decades. Uh, and there was they felt very powerless about Russia's influence. Uh, so, you know, none of this is, is surprising, the, the uh, sort of subtle or subterfuge going on in other ways in the in, Ukraine. It's a sad, sad place. So do you think at any point Putin will be forced to uh, say what he's doing, apart from his spokesman Peskov keeps saying that the West is being hysterical and they now have no intention of invading, and yet they're increasing the number of troops and military equipment in Belarus to the north, where there's virtually no defense on the uh, Ukrainian side and an open flat highway all the way to Kiev. Well, I think he, he senses he has nothing to lose by all this troop buildup. He's got, you know, masses of troops and masses of equipment. And, uh, you know, as long as there's no fighting, there's uh, there's no war. So uh, at his end, he must sort of enjoy seeing, uh, flexing Russia's power this way to the whole world. Uh, what he'll actually do, uh, it's still... It's still unclear, but the important thing also is that diplomacy is still is still happening. Talks are still happening. Tomorrow, Sergei Lavrov is talking to Antony Blinken by phone. Uh, so, the, and uh, the the uh, Normandy format, the four members of the Normandy format are supposed to meet in in February, and that's France, Russia, Ukraine, and Germany. And so they're also negotiating. NATO is negotiating, so it's all um, it's still it's still uh, a dialogue going on. So that that's encouraging. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Dulcie Limeback. Oh, oh, great, thank you. And I've been speaking with Dulcie Limeback, who is the founder and editor of Past Blue, which covers the United Nations. Previously, she was an editor for the Coalition for the UN Convention Against Corruption, was the publications director of the United Nations Association of the USA, and was an editor at the New York Times for more than 20 years. We're going to take a brief station break back discussing how the United States should respond if Russia invades Ukraine. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart In my Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Max Bergman, who's the director of the Moscow Project and the senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on European security and U.S.-Russian policy. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the United States Department of State in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he focused on political military affairs and nonproliferation. He was special assistant to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security and a speechwriter to then Secretary of State John Kerry and a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political and Military Affairs. And he has a report at the Center for American Progress, How the United States Should Respond If Russia Invades Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Max Bergman. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And at this point, I guess diplomacy is hanging by a thread. And on Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden said he believed Russia could attack Ukraine next month. This upset the Ukrainian President Zelensky at a press conference on Friday where he's warned about panic destabilizing the economy. And he went on to criticize the evacuation of diplomats, saying diplomats are like captains. They should be the last to leave a sinking ship. And Ukraine is not the Titanic. So at this point, what would you give the odds if the president is saying sometime next month there could be a Russian invasion or attack on Ukraine? Well, I think, unfortunately, the odds look quite high. Um, and, you know, it may be next month. It may be, you know, it may go on into the spring and, and summer. Uh, you know, there's some indications that the, if the Russians were to invade, they'd want to do it when the ground is somewhat frozen. And then uh, I think that I think that's true to some extent. Uh, I think they could definitely conduct an operation at any time. But then when you have more foliage and, and white life sort of returns, it also provides more ground cover for for uh, Ukrainian forces. So the winter is more attractive, I think, for Russia to to intervene militarily. And they are putting in places the kind of final pieces uh, that they would need to conduct such an uh, invasion. So I think you know, when President Biden is making that prediction, he's not just doing so uh, based off of also the reporting that we're all seeing in the troop movements that we're seeing on Twitter. It's the, uh, you know, the U.S. intelligence community is right now intensely focused on this with our satellite capabilities and other and other things. So uh, I, I think the U.S. feels pretty strongly that this is going to be the intent of Russia. And, and when you look at the sort of diplomatic uh, track, uh, it doesn't lead to any sort of optimism, at least in my book, that there's uh, that that you know, that Russia has any sort of intent on wanting to have a long, you know, drawn out diplomatic process. In fact, it's not much is happening on the diplomatic front. So I don't quite see uh, where Russia expects to get any progress or it, or Russia even looking for any progress there. And that, I think, um, is quite concerning. Uh, so I think Putin has therefore sort of backed himself in a corner that either he invades or he, if he doesn't, then he will have lost a lot of face, right? He will have, uh, put all these demands on the table. They will not have been met and then he will have climbed down. And that, you know, it's just hard for me to kind of see, uh, him, him doing that. So, um, I'm unfortunately sort of pretty pessimistic about how I think uh, things will play out. And uh, on Friday, of course, Putin had a long conversation with President 
Macron in France, and he complained that the U.S. and NATO weren't dealing with his main, the main issue, which of course is his demand that Ukraine never join NATO. But then Macron said, well, there's still some diplomatic path forward. Sometime in the next day or so, Boris Johnson, the UK's prime minister, will be also talking with Putin. But in terms of the reporting, not the obviously what the intelligence community is telling the president, but the reporting, for example, from the New York Times correspondent up on the border in the north with Belarus, there's massive uh, military maneuvers going on between the Russians and the Belarusians, and the Russians are deploying a lot of aircraft. And apparently the main highway, which is a newly paved highway from the Belarusian border, goes right down to Kiev, is pretty open, and it would be the quickest way to capture Ukraine's capital. And, of course, most of Ukraine's military forces are in the east where 100,000 Russian troops are massed. So we've already got warnings from the Pentagon on Friday saying that uh, this is going to be horrific. And it's, uh, General Milley says it's also unnecessary. What's your sense then of uh, of the military situation? Is there any improvements, and particularly if there's this vast gap in the north? Right. So I, I think you're uh, you know exactly right in pointing out uh, the the challenge now provided by the the exor- the quote unquote exercises taking place in Belarus. Um, and what's I think important to understand when thinking about the geography of Ukraine. Uh, is the Dnieper River, which you know, is a, a very wide uh, river, splits Ukraine in half, and, and Kiev sits on uh, the left bank of the river on the western side. But Belarusian territory that borders Ukraine is also on the western side of the river. So now, with Russia conducting exercises in Belarus, means that if, it, if Russia were to invade and send forces down south uh, from Belarus, it would be a short drive for them to get to the capital uh, of uh, Kiev or Kiev. And I think what's important to sort of also understand is that Russian forces are arrayed all around Ukraine. They have Ukraine basically from now the north in Belarus, but also uh, to the northeast of the country, uh, to the east of the country, and the south in Crimea. Um, so an invasion could, would you know, if there is a full-on invasion, would come from all sides. And the Ukrainian forces, and what makes this very difficult for Ukraine militarily, is they have been fighting a Russian insurgency in the east of Ukraine, um, aren't necessarily prepared for, you know, to to go toe-to-toe with the Russians. And the other thing is that Russia has spent uh, most of Putin's tenure modernizing its military such that uh, Russia has a very modern, highly capable military it's not quite as you know on par with the United States, but it's not that far off. Uh, and so, you know, what we have here is uh, an invasion for a potential invasion force, roughly equivalent to that which the U.S. invaded Iraq with, and it very much looks like part of what the Russian objective would be would be to conduct a regime change operation. And I am quite concerned about that because I think. Well, you know, there currently, yeah, there currently are uh, is a diplomatic track. There's sort of two different diplomatic tracks going on. One sort of be, mainly between the United States and Russia, where Putin has put down all these sort of 
vast uh, demands of basically NATO withdrawing back to kind of its 1997 position and and moving forces away from Russia's east or Russia's uh, borders. And then there's another track which involves the Europeans, which is this so-called Minsk process where, uh, you know, in 2014-2015, Russia invaded Ukraine. The Europeans uh, intervened and sort of brokered a peace agreement, a peace process. And, and you know, Ukraine was uh, had no leverage and Russia was basically holding a gun to its head. And so, so the Ukrainians agreed to this peace agreement, which would effectively give Russia de facto control of the eastern part of Ukraine, of the Donbass region. And then the Donbass region would then have a de facto veto over any Ukrainian uh, policy decision. So IE would give the Kremlin de facto control over Ukraine. And Ukraine has not implemented that agreement, I think rightly so, since it was sort of, you know, extorted into doing so. Uh, But I think that what that means is the Russians don't see any diplomatic track uh, to getting peace with or to resolving the situation with Ukraine, because they believe that, um, and this isn't totally unjustified, that if anything Ukraine agrees to under duress, they won't then follow through and implement. So that they feel that the diplomatic track in terms of negotiating over Ukraine is sort of played out. And I think that gets to what this ultimately is about, if I may, is that this, I think, is not so much about kind of rewriting the security architecture of Europe and getting the U.S. to pull back uh, from NATO. I mean, there's a a piece of that. And of course, that's a larger Putin desire. But ultimately, at the heart of this is that Russia has lost control of Ukraine. And Ukraine is seen as sort of central to, you know, if you're a Russian nationalist, to Russian power, to Russia, you know, it's vital to the Russian empire. If you're trying to sort of recreate the glory days of the Soviet Union, uh, Ukraine is part of that. Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. So I, I think this is fundamentally driven by wanting to control Ukraine. And that is why I'm pessimistic that Putin will, um, will decide not to invade. I think that uh, the only way forward for him now is to try to invade and control Ukraine because Ukraine has decided it doesn't want anything to do with Moscow and wants to uh, become close, more closely aligned with the West, with the U.S. and, and NATO and, and the EU. Right. Well, of course, the central irony here is, I mean, first of all, something I keep pointing out is that Putin offers gangster government like Lukashenko in Belarus. The Ukrainian yeah. people want democracy and the rule of law. On the other hand, there should be ways to satisfy Russia's security needs, and <laughs> navigating between those two seems to be the problem here. But central to Putin's mindset is he just he just recently said that the Ukrainian people and the Russian people are one and the same; they are part of the of the whole. So that means that Putin is prepared to kill his own people. Well. That shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, he came to power by blowing up a bunch of apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow. Right. And I, I think his government is, you know, there's sort of an, been a debate about whether Putin is, is a risk taker, or whether he's cautious. And there is this kind of line of thinking, and you see in a lot of uh, European capitals, in particular in Germany and Berlin, that view him, and even in, in Moscow, that he's, and there's an op-ed in the New York Times uh, from a Russian journalist that sort of argued that Putin's actually very cautious. And I, I just, I don't, I don't see it. Uh, you know, the apartment bombing point you made, I think if, if you know, if there's, a, it, it, by all indications, looks like uh, there was some sort of Russian plot or Kremlin plot or Russian intelligence services involved in 
the bombing of apartment buildings to help usher Putin to power. But but when you just look at Russian foreign policy, if you were to sort of go back to 2007 and just sort of play, play, you know, play forward the next seven years and say Russia would invade Georgia, um, it would then in 2014, there'd be a revolution in Ukraine. It would then seize Crimea, invade eastern Ukraine. And then in 2015, it would send a sizable forces into Syria in the midst of uh, a massive conflict. Um, and then in 2016, it would uh, conduct an unprecedented assault on, on American democracy. Uh, I, I, that doesn't strike me as sort of the, the you know, foreign policy actions of someone who is uh, you know, risk averse. That strikes me as someone who is willing to take a lot of risks and willing to do things that catch people by surprise. And, and I think when looking at Ukraine, uh, a country that he clearly cares a lot about, and you see that just in his own writings, you know, this isn't necessarily trying to kind of discern meaning out of cryptic statements. You know, he wrote uh, a whole piece about how he sees Ukraine as sort of part of Russia, how it's not even Ukra- being Ukrainian isn't real. Um, and so you, you see the kind of the, the Russian nationalism within him. Um, and, and I think when he thinks about what's the day after look like if he were to invade, I think one of the things that they probably look at the U.S. invasion of Iraq and say, well, okay, we won't disband the, the Ukrainian security services. We'll just co-opt them. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Uh, invaded successfully and then, you know, did uh, in, uh, disbanded the Iraqi military. But then other things that we did were that we invaded the entire country and tried to create a democracy in Iraq. And I think what you, what Putin will do is not try to occupy all of Ukraine if, if there's an invasion, um, but to control uh, mainly the Russian parts, uh, the, the, the predominantly Russian parts of Ukraine in, in eastern Ukraine, but go probably to the Dnieper River um, where there's a, a pretty secure border, uh, leave some forces behind, and then uh, you know, put in place a puppet government that can rule and would rule with an autocratic sort of iron fist. They're not trying to create, you know, a, a democracy. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of Soviet precedents for this. This is 1956. This is 1968. I think where I and I think that's probably how uh, Putin sees it himself, that this is putting down uh, uprising, you know, a, a, um, a government that should be a client of Moscow that has decided to move away. And in 1956, the Russians went in, Soviets went into to Budapest and Hungary and quashed uh, uh, the Hungarian government. Uh, and they did the same in Czechoslovakia in, in 1968. So I think that's how he sees this, that this is you know, part of Ukraine moving out of its orbit and Russia will reassert that. Um, and you know, there's all different ways that this could play out. We don't quite know how Ukraine will respond. Will there be an insurgency? Will they be able to fight back? Will the Russians' uh, forces just steamroll into Kiev or will it become difficult? Um, but uh, or will Putin sort of, you know, wake up one morning and decide he's not going to do it? I mean, that's the other aspect here is that when you have an autocratic government, uh, he can easily sort of decide not to and uh, and resist some of the forces that he's built up with the momentum of, of deploying forces. So, um, but I, 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 that's part of the, you know, your point is that Putin's sort of gangster-like out, outlook, I think, is kind of really essential to how he sees the world and how he pursues various decisions. And I think that's playing a role right now. 
So in terms of the day after, which you've written in, in your article at the Center for American Progress, Max Bergman, how the United States should respond if Russia invades Ukraine, already there's some friction between the Baltic states and Germany. Germany's not sending any arms, they're sending some helmets. The Green Party, of course, doesn't want the Nord Stream pipeline in any case. So that would be the first casualty, surely. That would be a big blow, economic blow to Putin. The U.S. and other countries are already trying to supply liquid natural gas because obviously the gas supplied to Europe would be cut off immediately. There are obviously severe economic consequences for Russia, but they seem to be prepared to ride it out. Given that situation, I imagine Russia will then retaliate against Western sanctions. They've already done a couple of rehearsals here, shutting down poisoning a water supply in Florida and shutting down a major oil pipeline in the east. So are we prepared here in the United States for cyber attacks below the threshold? And just the other point that I wanted to make is that surely there are some soft power assets that the U.S. could generate, and particularly in terms of penetrating the Russian media that is full of the most historical and ludicrous propaganda around the clock. And the Russian people, after, what, 23 years of Putin, just like they were in the Soviet Union, they're kind of numb. Uh, a lot of them believe the propaganda, but a lot of them don't. And surely there are ways that the U.S. can get the message out about the fact that they have a leader who basically, because of his KGB mindset, is more comfortable making life difficult for the Americans than making life better for the Russian people. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a great uh, last point. I, maybe I'll start with the, the sanction side. I think, you know, one of the things that um, has happened that I think has been really quite remarkable and well done by the Biden administration is the moment they sort of got wind and started really tracking Russian troop movements and then started to see that there's a real potential for an invasion, they sounded the alarm. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, are trying to imply that the Biden administration is sort of warmongering here, but it's, and it's, you know, sort of echoes of Iraq. Well, it's actually the exact opposite. The Biden administration really wants to focus on China. They did not want to f spend uh, the last three months uh, consumed by uh, a potential Russian invasion. But because they have sounded the alarm, they have been able to, I think, send a very strong message to Putin uh, that if he were to invade, the, the economic consequences will be tremendous. And they've been able to start to coordinate with European allies about what the response will look like. Now, not everything is, you know, there's always going to be differences. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, roughly 30 NATO members and, uh, and everyone has sort of different interests. And also there's difference in threat perception. A lot of uh, people in Europe in particular don't quite believe an invasion is imminent, which, you know, is a legitimate perspective. It may not be. Uh, this may be posturing. You know, I don't think it is. But but so then to be sort of hypothetically hawkish, which is sort of what we're asking them to do, uh, becomes sort of difficult. And so what we're seeing is a lot of pressure being put on Germany to sort of stand uh, to be more firm than they're usually comfortable with. And that's creating a lot of... Uh, sort of discomfort within uh, the new German chancellor and, and in German politics. Uh, but I do, I think you're right that I think if we do sanctions and I think we will 
to quite strong sanctions. I think the energy lever uh, that Putin has uh, to potentially cut off gas to Europe uh, is one that he might use. And so that's why the Biden administration and Europeans are really assessing now and looking how can they get through the winter without Russian gas if, if that were to be cut off. The options there aren't great. You know, it would really take some sacrifice, not just uh, amongst European governments, but to potential European citizens and potential European businesses that might have to begin rationing some energy use. Um, but, uh, but on our side, you know, one of the things that I am somewhat concerned about is that I don't think we have really built up our domestic uh, uh, resilience capabilities enough. Uh, you know, 2016 uh, attack on our election system, uh, then the Obama administration left, we had the Trump administration that downplayed the threat caused by Russia. Trump was himself complicit <laughs> in the Russian attack against our election system. And so the actions that were taken, some were mandated by Congress, some just sort of happened uh, within the executive branch, but was not kind of a cohesive and coordinated response. The Biden administration has come in. Obviously, we have the crisis of COVID and all sorts of other things. And Russia wasn't sort of front uh, in on their minds. Um, and I think when we look at the FBI, for instance, and the FBI's counterintelligence focus, you know, the FBI has missed the you know, two biggest attacks against the country uh, in the last uh, uh, you know, decade where, you know, or since 9-11, Russia's attack against our election system and then January 6th. So I hope that Russia, that the FBI is really now focused on uh, the threat from Russia. The cyber attacks that we have seen, the ransomware attacks, the, the shutting down of pipelines and causing gas prices to increase, I think are a real potential threat, as is a potential threat to perhaps uh, the stock market uh, has been, you know, our financial systems um, has been a concern also that Russia may seek to disrupt that. So I think the thing that we have to do is that when we respond to Russia with our strong sanctions, uh, that we have to be ready for Russia to respond. We responded with strong sanctions in 2014 and 15, then didn't anticipate that there would be a Russian counter response. Uh, and when it came to our election system, we were caught completely off guard. So I, I think I think there has been a lot of lessons learned from policymakers. I'm you know, hopeful that that is the case in the Biden administration. But, you know, we don't quite, you know, no, no attacks are going to be exactly the same. The Russians may seek to do some of the same things, but they may uh, have different targets in mind. Um, but what's clear, and I think that this is uh, I think the overall takeaway that we should have is that while, you know, we wanted the Cold War to end and we had clearly moved on and moved past the Cold War, uh, Vladimir Putin never had. Um, and Russian intelligence has continuously, since the end of the Cold War, uh, been uh, seeking ways to influence, seeking ways to gain potential levers uh, and looking at ways to undermine and attack us uh, if need be, if there's a, a conflict. So, um, I think we have to be very prepared for what may come from a Russian response. Well, Max Bergman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Max Bergman, who's the director of the Moscow Project and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focuses on European security and U.S.-Russia policy. From 2011 to 2017, he served in the United States Department of State in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff, where he focused on political military affairs and nonproliferation, special assistant to the Undersecretary of Arms Control for, and International Security, speechwriter to then Secretary of State John Kerry, and a senior advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political military affairs 
And he has a report at the Center for American Progress how the United States should respond if Russia invades Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice saying something to me One more life.